The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Well, I'd like you to take your Bibles now, if you would, and open them to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And we're going to look at this text again this evening. Uh, this is the fifth message from these verses. And what I'm doing is just using this as sort of a jumping off point to get us into the subject of prayer, uh, communicating with God in prayer. And if you'll look at First Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse number 1, the Apostle Paul writes, I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come under the knowledge of the truth. A few weeks ago, I, I read a, a great article in Table Talk magazine. I don't know how many of you take that or in, I think some of the some of the church members do, but there was a really good article in there. Uh, some of you I know have heard Derek Thomas speak. He's a very dynamic Scottish preacher and really a really a good preacher. But he wrote an article in this Table Talk magazine about uh, church prayer meetings, in which he made the comment of about how that the church was actually conceived in a prayer meeting. Now I'll have to say that I disagree with his premise starting off is because uh, he has the idea that the church began on Pentecost and I don't particularly agree with that. But what he had to say about prayer in that article was very good. He talked about how the church was, the, the first church was very much devoted to prayer, how there was unity in prayer and the success of the church really depended greatly upon prayer. Now that of course was about corporate prayer, which is something that we talked about uh, during this series. But And that concerns the church uh, prayer with the church as a body. But what he said also was, was really good to apply to the individual. And that is, we, we need lives that are devoted to prayer. And our success in the Christian life is going to be dependent upon how closely that we are connected to God in our prayers and communicating with him. And we should never feel as Christians that we just come too frequently to God he invites us to come with our prayers. And you're not going to be a weak Christian. You, you can't be a weak Christian when you remember that you need to spend time with God in prayer. Now what we're trying to do in these messages is learn to live for Jesus. And so we have to include prayer as one of the main considerations in living for him. Now in the first four previous, or the four previous messages rather that we've had on prayer, we discussed this one major point, And that is practicing the essentials. When we first come into the Christian life, all of us come in as babies. Every one of us is immature in the faith. But nonetheless, as immature as we are, there is none of us that really thinks... I mean, we, when we first come into the Christian life, there, there's none of us that really think that prayer is one of those Christian graces that has to be taught. Now, most of us from our childhood have been taught that we can pray. Uh, you had a 
Maybe a prayer that your parents gave you at bedtime and before you went to bed you said that little prayer. And if you didn't get instructions as a child, this has happened to almost every one of us that sometime or another we have been in trouble over something and we've gone to God and we prayed and asked God to help us and we never thought for a minute that God was not going to listen to us or that we didn't have any right to come into the presence of God and speak to him. We just thought that was a natural thing. That anybody can do that. We don't need to be taught how to pray. We're just able to do it. And there are some people who think that they're even experienced enough with God that what they can do is negotiate with him. God, if, if you will do this, then this is what I'll do for you. And almost all of us at some time or another have done that. And it never crossed our mind that we had to be Christians, that we need to be taught how to pray. But then when you do become a Christian and you start to learn these things, something changes. You begin to know Christ and then you start to think about this. How should I pray? What is the best way for me to pray? Am I actually doing it right? And what we learn is that we are not experts in prayer. There's a whole lot that we do need to learn. And as we learn more of the Word of God, we find many areas of imperfections that we have. The Word of God shows up, the imperfections that are in our lives, and one of those areas that it shows a lot of imperfection is in the area of prayer. We don't actually know what we're doing. We do have to be taught this. Now, the desire to learn how to pray was expressed by the Lord's disciples when they said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. They couldn't get close to Jesus without his life impacting theirs. And they saw that he was a man of prayer. And when they saw what he could do with prayer, then they said, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, this is one of the things that we learn in the Christian life is that we have to be people of prayer. If we're going to be like Christ, if our life is going to be like his, then we have to be people that pray. Well, Jesus, of course, was very happy to teach his disciples. In fact, he, he gave them a model prayer to practice with, uh, one that would change how that they brought their petitions before him to bring the right petitions to him. And then Jesus also just gave them direct teaching by personal example. Now, in the first four messages, what we did was to look at the essentials of prayer, and those were scriptural approaches that helped to make prayer acceptable to God. How do we approach God? Well, we talked about faith and we talked about coming to him in humility and harmony and with thankfulness and so on. And those are really, really good parts about prayer that we need to learn. So I do hope that you wrote those down and you've already begun to uh, practice those in your personal prayer life, model your prayer after those suggestions. But then I also encourage you, you have that list of things, the way that you're supposed to pray. Don't be mechanical about it either. I mean, don't be afraid to switch up the order of things that I gave you there and, and just, uh, you, you don't necessarily want to come to God uh, like you have a script that's memorized. I mean, it, this, is not, uh, this is not like going before a professor and you're going to get a grade on your prayers. No, you want prayer to be natural, like going to God and speaking to him as a friend. This is not about your stylistic points. And I think that you'll understand that a little bit better and as we go through the message tonight. So we have four messages dealing with the essentials, and tonight we're going to move on to another part of the study. This is also very important. Prayers tend to get bottled up and get hung up. And so the next part that we need to learn about, number two, is avoiding the obstacles. What kind of things are going to hinder your prayers to God? 
Now, Jesus, in his teachings on prayer, included positive statements. He said, these are things that you need to do. But also in his teachings, he had many negative statements, things that you should not do. Now, some of his great teachings on this are in Matthew chapter 6, where he, he gave that model prayer. And before he did, he preceded that with some things. He said, this you ought not to do. Don't pray in this way. So before he gave the model prayer, the introduction to it was how not to pray. So all of the disciples, all of these men, uh, I think they were all raised in Jewish homes. They were all Jewish men. We do know that. Uh, they all had religious backgrounds. Some of them, maybe most of them, were of the sect of the Pharisees. Some of them were a little bit outside of that mold, and they weren't good Pharisees. Matthew would be one of those. He was a reprobate tax collector, a publican, so he... Um, he wouldn't have been much in favor with the Pharisees. But I'm sure that even in his formative years, that he grew up like the others, that he had the background. He, he knew the religious system just like they did. Well, Jesus was never one to mince words. And so he went right after the throat, right to the throat of the self-righteous Pharisees on this issue of prayer. Now, he, he had a few choice words that he had to say. And uh, nobody ever said about Jesus... Okay, Jesus, now tell us what you really think. No, he, he had some very, very choice words. And he came right to the Pharisees with a charge of hypocrisy. And their hypocrisy was never greater than with their practice of prayer. Now, in Matthew chapter 6, in verse number 5, Jesus said, And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to the Father which is in secret, and thy Father which, is, which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathens do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before you ask him. Now, we're going to take some notes on those few verses there about what Jesus said, things that you are not to do. And the first one that we would note, what Jesus says, is about improper recognition. Improper recognition. Now, the Pharisees, they loved to stand in the synagogues and in the streets when they prayed. Why did they like to do that? Well, the answer is they wanted to be seen of men. They, they liked to be looked at. They, they loved to be praying and uh, just open one eye to see if everybody was paying attention to what they were saying. They loved to stand there in their, in their Sabbath robes and put on the religious show for everybody to watch. They wanted to be recognized. They wanted everybody to know what great men of God they were. So they would, they, would, they would dress very eloquently and they would speak flawlessly. And you would listen to their prayers and you would think, oh, what polished orators they are. What great men of prayer they are. Well, we look at that and we, we would think, well, how conceited is that? Well, we, we don't like that. We don't want anything to do with people that would be like that. And it kind of reminds me of of the, the platform sitters. You know, you've heard me talk about this before, the platform sitters that you have in many churches. So these are the men that you can, while the sermon's going on, you can stare at them and you can think about, oh, what holy men they must be to sit up there on the platform. Now, 
as you know, that's a little bit too much for me. That's why we don't really have platform sitters in our church. But uh, these people, it's uh, with the Pharisees and, and the relationship between the people and the Pharisees, it wasn't quite like that because the people actually did very, were very much impressed with the show that the Pharisees put on. And many in these churches that have these sitters, you know, they, they make heroes out of men and they follow the preachers around like Moses and Elijah. You know, let's build a tabernacle here for Pastor Fancy and one over there for Pastor Pride. And recognition is the thing that many people crave in the church. But this is the very sort that Jesus says that we need to stay away from. Stay away from the hypocrites that want to put their names out there in the public. But we note here that Jesus is not saying it's wrong to pray in public. You have to understand how and why they prayed in public. Well, we don't see very much of it today. I was raised in the Bible Belt, and I remember it was very common that you'd go out to the restaurants and people would bow their heads before they eat and they would say a prayer. On Sunday, you always hoped that church was going to get out a little bit early so that you could beat the rest of the church crowds out there to get to the restaurant so you could have your lunch. I even know one church that changed its services so their people could get to the restaurant quicker than everybody else. Um, so, you know, you want to beat the crowd to lunch. Uh, and, and I tell you, if you preached in that church, if you, were, if you were asked to preach in that church and you went overtime, that's not a good thing. People were going to be very upset because they didn't get to lunch on time. Well, here, of course, you don't worry about that because we let out so late that the crowd's gone and uh, the restaurant's about to close up, so we're not too concerned about that. But I remember we did used to, you know, people used to rush to the restaurants. People were bowing their heads. And, but then when they were done praying, they started shouting at the waitress and they started treating her like dirt and would stiffer on the tip and things like that. And you, you can talk to Jared about that. He... He worked his way through school uh, waiting tables and he always said the church crowd was the very worst. Is that, that true? <laughs> the, the church crowd is the worst. But here's my point about it. People today, now, people are ashamed to pray in public. I mean, this is what we do. If, we're, if, if we think, well, the thing that we need to do is we do need to bow our heads and pray before our meal in the restaurant. We're kind of praying and looking around a little bit as we do and fiddling with something here and there so people won't know that we actually are praying? Well, that's not at all like it was in Jesus' time. The whole point to them was to prove how good that they were as Pharisees. Who is the best Pharisee? So they made sure that everybody heard the long, fancy prayers. They wanted that recognition. So in the synagogues, they would love when they were called on to pray, and they wanted to show how, they, how good they were, and they wanted people to look at them. And Jesus pointed out here that prayer is not something for your recognition. Prayer is for the glory of God. You know, I remember a fellow that visited here, I... Uh, it was just not, not long ago. He was a visiting preacher, and as a courtesy, I asked him if he would come and pray. And I was a little bit put out with him, to be honest with you, because he didn't just get up to pray. He had to announce to everybody who he was and tell us what he was all about, tell us something about him. I didn't ask him for a biography. I asked him to come up and, and give a prayer. So you wonder sometimes, what do people have in their minds? Is, is it more about recognizing them or about recognizing God? But anyway... 
Jesus said, that's something you need to avoid. God isn't interested when you recognize you or somebody else instead of him. Now rather, Jesus added in verse 6 that when you pray, you ought to have this kind of a, an attitude that you would pray in secret and you would make your prayers between you and God. Now, make, make sure you understand, he's not speaking against public prayer. He's talking about the abuse of it. So it's better for you to pray in secret. Nobody knows you're praying. Make it between you and God. Well, there's a second obstacle that we find here. The second one is inordinate repetition. Verse number 7. But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much praying. Well, here's a good question. Is it okay to repeat yourself in prayer? Well, Jesus did. He went into the garden and he prayed three times for the same thing. We talked about it last week. Uh, the Apostle Paul had that physical ailment, so he went to the Lord and he kept praying for the same thing. He was persistent in his prayers and he kept asking to get what he wanted. So what does Jesus mean here when he says, don't use vain repetitions? Well, he's talking about inordinate repetition. He's talking about repetitive ritualistic prayers. Now, for example, Roman Catholicism is very notorious for these kinds of prayers. A priest will say to you, well, not, maybe not to you, but to their people, they would say, all right, you have committed this sin. You come and you confess a sin. He says, this is what it's going to cost you to be forgiven. You've got to say 10 Hail Marys. And so you get busy with the repetition. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners uh, now and at the hour of death. Amen. I'm not good with my Hail Marys. Then you start over. You say, Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of death. Amen. Then you start again. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mother, Mary of God, pray for sinners now and at the hour of death. Amen. Then you start again. Hail Mary, full of grace, and on and on you go until you get up to number 10. I'll tell you something about that kind of a prayer. That's heathen. That's an abomination to God. Now, that prayer is addressed to someone who cannot intercede for you. It's addressed to somebody who has no divinity, no ability to answer prayer, or to, as I said, not to intercede. Mary is not a redeemer. That is a ritualistic prayer. And that is exactly the kind of prayer that Jesus meant. And it's probably even worse than what the... Pharisees prayed, worse than the hypocrisy of Pharisees. So repeating Hail Marys and Our Fathers, that means nothing to God. I think the only thing that does is to anger God. What he may do is heat hell seven times hotter because of that. So Jesus said, don't repeat prayers like that. The chants, the, the useless recycling of the same words over and over, that means nothing to him. And I'll add this, that the same is true of the constant repetition of the Lord's Prayer that many people use in church services. God cares nothing at all about the ritualism of that. Most people, when they're in churches that, that pray the Lord's Prayer over and over again, they just do it because that's what everybody's doing. Now, we notice what he says in the last part of verse 7. He says, they think they shall be heard for their much speaking. Now, is that what it takes for God to hear you? Do you have to keep running on at the mouth for God to hear you? 
Oh, you remember those worshipers on a Baal on Mount Carmel? That Elijah began to mock, him, mock them and he said, yell a little bit louder. Maybe your God is on a journey somewhere. Maybe he's asleep. Well, praying long prayers doesn't mean that God's going to hear you. That doesn't necessarily make your prayers better. Now, Jesus, you know, you know that he prayed a long time sometimes. He spent all night in prayer sometimes, but it wasn't long prayers that was the whole key to him having a communication with his father. No, the key was the relationship that he had, the close communion that he had, the love of communication that he had with the Father, and that can never be substituted with mindless speaking. So it's not that length of the prayer that really matters. Now, sometimes long prayers can be a source of pride. I've heard preachers that talk about how many hours that they've spent in prayer. That's their pride. I mean, they exaggerate the numbers. And if you start to put things together, you find out that they're, the many prayer hours that they have, they wouldn't have time to eat. They don't have time to sleep. They don't have to, time to study. They don't have time to preach. They spent too much time praying. Well, Jesus says, avoid the mindless speaking. Don't get caught in a prayer rut. Be persistent about what you pray, but also be sincere about it. Repetition is okay, but inordinate repetition is not okay. Now, the third thing that we find is intentional transgression. Intentional transgression. This is what David said. If I regard iniquity in my heart, this is Psalm 66, 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. If I regard iniquity... Well, how could you regard iniquity without being intentional? That, that's a problem with prayer. Now, David here is particularly speaking of sins that you won't give up. Sins that you absolutely want to hold on to. You know that you did it. You know that God doesn't like it. But you won't give it to God and you won't confess it. That kind of sin definitely hinders prayer. Now... It's going to stop prayer dead in its tracks. It shoves it in a bottle. It puts a cork in the bottle. Intentional sin is going to keep your prayers from being answered. But sometimes we pray and we don't know that we've sinned. We have unintentional sin. Some of the sins that we commit are not premeditated. We might not even know that we've actually committed a sin. So it's good for us sometimes to just to take a moment to approach God about forgiveness of our unintentional sins. And if you miss something that you didn't know about, then you have the Holy Spirit there that's able to take care, care of things for you. Now, I once read an article that a fellow wrote, and he didn't believe in biblical repentance. Uh, this person was uh, Curtis Hudson, if I remember correctly. And he said that you can't tell people that they have to repent of all sin to be saved because nobody knows actually how many sins that they've committed. Well, that was a terribly foolish statement, a very bad uh, doctrinal statement, and one shameful for a Baptist preacher. Of course, we know this, we have to confess and repent sins that we know. Biblical evangelical repentance is refusing to hold on to any sins that we know. So we're never going to say, well, God saved me, I believe in you, but I am not, I'm not going to stop hanging out at bars, and I'm not going to... I'm not going to stop my cursing. I'm going to keep on doing that. Well, Curtis Hudson, in his opinion of repentance, was exactly that. Repentance isn't necessary. So do we tell people that they can be saved like that? 
No, of course not. We tell people, you have to repent of all known sin, and we tell them, you have to have the attitude to repent of all the sins that you don't know about. Whatever it is, Lord, I renounce it all. Well, unconfessed sin is an obstacle for salvation, and if it is for salvation, we can sure bet that it's, you bet, you could sure bet that it's an obstacle in in your prayers. Sin keeps us out of fellowship with God. So we can never expect God to give us something we've already denied what he's told us to do. I mean, could you imagine that you could go out and carouse on Saturday night, do anything that you want to do, and then sit down and do your bedtime prayers and expect that God's going to hear you? It's not going to happen. Now, can you imagine also that God has a point system and what you need to do is to gain enough points in order to get your prayers answered? You know, one of the things that Martin Luther protested against the Roman Catholic Church was over the, sell, uh, the selling of indulgences. What, what they were actually doing is that you could pay for your sin up front. You'd go to a priest and uh, you had to tell him what you were going to do and then he would tell you how much it was going to cost if you did this sin. And so you would just give him whatever it cost and then you go have a good time. Well, we would shudder. With, with a system like that. We would think, well, you, you should never do something like that. But Baptist preachers have their own variation of it. When they say that salvation has no requirements of lordship, that all you need to do is say a prayer, make the pledge, then do what you want to do, then how would you ever think that there's restrictions on prayer? That doesn't work. So you think about it this way, that many Christians live by the mantra, it's easier to ask forgiveness than it is to ask permission. And so they do what they want to do with the idea, well, God will just forgive me of it later. Don't be foolish. Don't think that God operates that way. I think people that think things like that may not be saved at all. And if they are saved, they had better get ready for some very hard licks of chastisement. You can't just go sin and say, oh, well, God will forgive me later. So you have to avoid that obstacle, intentional transgression. Now, let me give you the fourth one. This is the last one. The fourth one is indecent relations. Now, there's a totally different direction I could go with this than what I intend. Uh, Some of this could be pretty mean stuff and nasty stuff, and I think all of you know what I mean. I don't want to talk to you about indecent relations in regards to adultery, the, the multitude of sexual sins that are heaped on us like so many tons of garbage. Now, we want to focus on something else here that might not be as quite as obvious to you. By indecent relations, I mean the way that you treat each other. Are you mean? Are you an angry person? Do you care if you hurt feelings? Do you only think about you? Do you never think about others? Did you know that's one of the Bible's major topics? One of the major things you find in Scripture? Just the ordinary relationships that people have with people. The way that you treat each other. Well, Jesus taught on the subject in the Sermon on the Mount, and and you remember how the Sermon on the Mount starts? It begins with the Beatitudes. And to remember this Beatitude, where Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Why did he say that? Because being merciful is the way that God is. That when you explore God's character, you'll find a perfect pattern for the way that we are to treat each other. That's why he says, be merciful and you'll also receive mercy. Oh, you think about your salvation. Isn't that because of mercy? 
Ephesians chapter 2 says, But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Now mercy... That's a term for the way that God thinks of you. He cared about you. He was concerned about you. He was concerned about how to treat you. What's the best way for you to be treated? You think that, you think about Jesus, did, did he suffer on the cross because of what was best for him? Well, the plain truth of the matter is, he couldn't save himself and you at the same time. And so he chose to save you. So what is it that God wants to reproduce? He wants people that are so grateful for mercy and grace that they show his character to others. Paul said, And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Now there's some very interesting verses in the Sermon on the Mount that show you how to treat each other and how you treat each other will often determine whether God accepts you. Matthew 5, 23, Jesus said, 23 and 24, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, or has something against you, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First, be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Now, what he's telling us there, if somebody has something against you, if you've got a quarrel with somebody, you go and you make that thing right before you bring, or you leave your gift there, you go make it right, and that's what it's going to take before God accepts your gift. Well, another one that really stands out in his teaching on prayer in chapter 6 is in verses 14 and 15. He says, For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So if you... If you want God to hear you, you have to be willing to follow Christ's example. You have to be forbearing with others. When, when someone makes you mad and what you want to do is to push back, stop. Hold your tongue. You keep it in. How oh, many people think, well, I'm not going to let anybody push me around. You hear this all the time today. And they think, oh, it's weakness. That's weakness if you don't stand in there and throw back all the verbal abuse that you can. But is restraint really weakness? Not according to God. The greatest strength is the strength of self-control. Strength is when you have to fight yourself that temptation to blast someone. Oh, it's easy for you to do the fleshly thing. It's easy for you to just give in and lose your temper and just concede to that. It takes more courage to be a person who bites your tongue and doesn't say anything. Isn't that what Jesus did? He held on with restraint. He always stayed in control. So if you're a Christian, who are you supposed to be like? Well, you're supposed to be like Christ. You know the answer to that. This is not hard stuff. We're not, you know, this is not a seminary course we're giving here. We're saved to be conformed to the image of Christ. So that at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, nobody says, well, I wonder who that person looks like. What they'll say about you, there goes one of Jesus' children. They act like Jesus. Now, do you know what else this means? 
Sometimes you have to be nice to people and bite your lip and do it because they will not be nice to you. They're just people who will not be nice. What do you do about that? Well, he, the Bible never gives us an excuse to lash back at people, but it says to return bad treatment with good treatment. This is what Romans 12 says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. So if you're not living according to Jesus' pattern, don't expect that God will hear you. So we have to avoid this obstacle of acting indecently towards others. Now let me make another comment, and then we'll close the message tonight. There is a special person in your life that if you treat them badly, God will not hear your prayers. You know who that person is? That's a good answer. The scriptures mention the person specifically, and as Chuck said, if you treat this person badly, God's going to shut you down. That person is me. The person is the pastor. You offend me, and you got big trouble. That's not really the truth. And Chuck got it wrong. Actually, the answer is in 1 Peter chapter 3. So let's notice these these verses, how they start and how, how they finish. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 5 says, For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection under their own husbands. Now pay attention to this, ladies. Peter said that women are to be in subjection to their husbands. Now recently... That old democratic rascal Jimmy Carter came out and said, that's not true, that women don't have to be in subjection to their husbands. But Paul taught this too. It's an apostolic command. And Peter goes on in verse number 6 to give the Old Testament example. He says, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement. But then he goes on in verse number 7, he brings husbands into it and their responsibility. He says, likewise ye husbands, dwell with them, that is your wives, according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife, as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life. And what's that last line? That your prayers be not hindered. Now do you see that? Specifically, God says if you want your prayers answered, you better treat your wife right. You better honor her. You better speak well of her. You better take care of her. And I think that we could expand that and make it a whole family affair. That wives, if you want your prayers answered, submit to your husband. Now pay, pay attention to what Paul says elsewhere on the subject because he says that submitting to one another and submitting to a wife to her husband is the same as submitting to the Lord. So what you do is you, you, you don't honor your husband above the Lord, and husbands don't honor their wives above the Lord. The command here is about living in the Lord. So if a husband says to you as a wife, do this, and that doesn't please God, or he says, don't do this, and that's something that does please God, you're not to submit. You're to obey God rather than man. So what we're speaking of here is godly relationships. That, that husbands and wives must treat each other well and thus honor Christ. 
You know that this is what, what God did when he gave us the example of marriage. He uses marriage to represent the church. And he says, uh, the membership submits to the head of the church, that's Christ. And he says, the wife submits to the husband of the family, the head of the family. She's to give herself to him. And then he goes on and he says that Christ loved his bride, which is the church, and the man is supposed to love his wife, who is his bride. Well, if that pattern is destroyed then prayer is never going to make it. If a husband and wife are not in harmony over these things, prayers are hindered. And then one quick addition to that, children are also in the mix. Children are to obey father and mother. And if children don't obey, prayers are hindered. So if you have an obstacle in your home about prayer, maybe it's your children. And uh, you can't blame the children about this, you blame the parents because what parents are to do is to make their children mind. And so, if you want to live for Jesus, if you want to communicate with Him, with God the Father, avoid these obstacles. And I would encourage you men to study this thing a little bit closer because you, you, you don't know how much, how much power your wife actually wields that she can stop heaven. But you probably already knew that, didn't you? I mean, that can happen. So what do you do? You avoid improper recognition, inordinate repetition, intentional transgression, and indecent relations. And that helps you to avoid the obstacles of getting your prayers answered. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the time we spent in your word tonight. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege of prayer that we can come to you. Lord, help us to practice the essentials. Help us to avoid the obstacles. We do want our prayers to be right. We want to follow the example that you've given. So, Lord, bless your people. And we do pray that we would be people of prayer and that we would have power with you in prayer as we rely on the, on the promises that you've given in your word. Bless your people tonight, Lord. We give you the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.